0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast, critical discussions in critical times. Here's your host, Bill Kelly. Welcome. This is the Bill Kelly Podcast, critical discussions for our critical times. I'm your host, Bill Kelly. Uh, We're going to talk about an issue that uh, I know that the Doug Ford government wishes would just kind of go away. But it's not going to go away. And that, of course, is uh, the green belt, the treatment of the green belt, uh, the abuse of the green belt, and so many other things that we're finding out. Uh, Our guest today uh, is well-versed in these. We've talked to him on the old radio show a number of times about environmental issues. He is uh, Phil Pothin, Environmental Defense uh, Environment Program, uh, who is well-schooled on these things. First, First of all, Phil, great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for having me uh just, I, I don't want to go teepee into the context i think a lot of people might know a lot of what's going on the green belt was uh devised and implemented by the mcgiddy government some years ago uh and for those who may not have, have heard our discussions in the past uh at the time of that uh occurrence i was on hamilton city council so i was well versed in what was going on because it had a large impact on the hamilton area and i was the chairman of the planning committee uh, my wife uh, Rebecca Wissens was one of the first people on the advisory committee for the Greenbelt. She worked with Dr. Bob Elgie. So uh, maybe we had more insight into this than some did. Uh, but I think the, maybe the one of the most important statistics here is that over the years, Ontarians have come to know exactly what this is for, and they've seen how positive the results can be on this. What was it about seventy-eight percent? I believe of Ontarians actually favor the Green Belt and say, "Yeah, we had, we were skeptical at first, but no, this is a good thing. Leave it alone." Uh, apparently, uh, Doug Ford and his gang did not get that email uh, and started fiddling around with things. And we know about uh, Steve Clark, and 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 he's resigned now. And initially, as you and I were talking about. Uh, the government tried to say, yeah, 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 well, it was the staff that organized this thing. It was not a political decision at all. We know that's not true because of some of the uh, freedom of information uh, uh, information that was uh, uh, obtained through hard work from Environment, Defense, and a number of other agencies like that. So where do we stand on this? I mean, uh, they've re- they've recanted now and said, oh, no, we're going to change everything back. They put a new minister in there. Uh, Paul Calandra seems to be the guy that goes in after a minister screws up. He goes in there and tries to make everything happy again. But they're trying to say nothing to see here now. Okay, it's all fine. We're going to fix this. We're going to revert back to the way things were and and just leave us alone. It's not that simple, though, is it?
1: No, uh, not at all. I really wish it were, but it isn't. Uh, and I'll tell you, we see uh, clear indications from the government that rather than accepting that it's been caught out and, uh, you know, abandoning this uh, attempted... Scam, frankly, Uh, they are going to be like Wiley Coyote and try it all over again in a different way. And we see uh, some of the breadcrumbs that lead us in that direction being dropped rhetorically. Number one, Uh, the government is consistently and misleadingly trying to pretend that this is a scandal about how the Greenbelt removals were done or how the boundary expansions were done. And let's be very clear, the fundamental scandal is that the government chose to sprawl outwards and chose to remove land from the Green Belt at a time when it knew that sprawling and removing land from the Green Belt would not just cause serious harm to the environment, but actually make it harder to increase housing supply. Every home that would get built in its friends' sprawl developments would come at the expense of a larger number of homes elsewhere in more compact locations, more compact forms, in places where it uses existing infrastructure. The government knew from the start that this was going to accomplish the opposite of what it said it was trying to achieve, and it chose to do it anyway. And so everything we're seeing now are the measures that it used to try and make boundary expansion happen anyway in the absence of any legitimate justification for doing so. It's the absence of any reason and any benefit from expanding boundaries or eating greenbelt land that leads us to ask, what the real justification was. And these documents show that the real impetus for Greenbelt removals and boundary expansion was the personal intervention of political actors uh, to push for projects that simply benefited the government's friends.
0: But this is... Really, a a variation on on a number of things that the Ford government has done ever since they came to power uh, two elections ago now, Uh, you know, not too long after he was elected and became premier. I mean, they needed a new OPP commissioner And, and the powers that be said, okay, here's the process. And he said, no, 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 no. I want this guy uh so let's just ignore the process and uh if if it not been for the public outcry that may well have gone to to the whole point and and Taverner would have become the OPP commissioner uh well he's not qualified Mr Premier well then Drop the qualifications, then, so he can be qualified, and went on and on and on like this. Uh, you mentioned a few minutes ago about the affordability task force that was set up. Uh, Tim Hudak, former leader of the PC Party, uh, was a key member of that. They came back and said, "You don't need to go in the Greenbelt. There's
1: more than enough yeah. land." They ignored yeah, it. Yeah, let me tell you, like you know, that task force was not perfect by any means. It really was a handpicked, uh, you know, task force. That you know, there were a lot of problems with that report, but. The, the, just to show you how it should how extreme what the government wanted to do, that even that hand picked task force's report could not provide anything like a justification for the government wanted to do, mm. and it's a pattern that we see repeated again and again with policy decisions by this government. The government gets clear evidence that, uh, you know, a particular proposal. Uh, will actually be counterproductive or useless. Uh, And it goes ahead anyway because its friends benefit from it. Highway 413 works that way. Uh, We know that it will not substantially deliver any non-trivial travel time improvements for existing residents. What it really is, is a $10 billion scheme to subsidize sprawl development on the Peel Plain for many of the same actors that would benefit from municipal boundary expansion Greenbelt removals. Uh, When we talk about uh, the Therm project uh, in the city of Toronto, uh, you know, spending almost a billion taxpayer dollars, at least at least half a billion taxpayer dollars, on a parking garage uh, for uh, a a spa company that usually builds suburban uh, big box style developments in Europe. But now that we're giving them a prime piece of our waterfront, we saw that they actually ignored. it. I don't know if you saw the stories earlier this week, mm. but they, there was no process, really open process for selecting bids. They just put their finger on this one and they chose to put huge tax fair expenditure into it. And then we see uh, just today, there's a report on uh, the government's, uh, and this is a little bit out of my bailiwick, but. The government's healthcare approach of, of it was warned that uh, bringing in for-profit uh, healthcare providers uh, will actually slow down and and actually lead to less capacity to do surgeries rather than having those healthcare professionals work within the public system. But they are using very real problems in the healthcare system as a pretext. For doing things that just benefit their friends, it's a consistent pattern with the government. And the problem is, it is so ingrained a pattern that the government does not seem to be learning its lesson. We know, like we have, and you will hear about this very soon. Uh, the government is intending, uh, after it reverses the current boundary expansions, to take another run at it to try and create a new. They they can't get a uh, uh, independent task force, even if it's handpicked by them to justify what it wants. So now there's going to be a report commissioned directly by the building industry with a specific mandate to create an excuse that they're going to use to try and take another crack at this and that there is going to be, in all likelihood, another crack at undermining the actual planning law itself. So they can say, it's like, you know, it's legalizing things that are very obvious to everyone, uh, very obviously corrupt. But if they decide it's legal to do these things, then they can do them. So they are very, for lack of a better word, bloody minded about trying to get this done. And this is why it's very important that Ontarians remember if there is any attempt to remove lands from the Greenbelt, if there is any attempt to uh you know do these boundary expansions again you know we cannot get distracted by the fact that it's a different process the fundamental corruption here is that they're doing something that's going to slow down housing production and they're knowingly doing that in the time of a housing shortage and so and so we are warning people to look out for that that's, that's very likely to happen again we're not taking this as a win and it's over And it's going to go away. They're probably going to try to use the 10 year review of the green belt to have another go at this, despite the government uh, uh, claiming once again and the Mm -hmm. premier saying he will never remove land for the green belt.
0: As I mentioned uh, earlier in our conversation, uh, I, I was on city council at the time of the implementation, Hamilton City Council at the time of the implementation of the green belt policies. And and there was some pushback, uh, even from some of the councillors, saying, why this part, not that part, et cetera. And, and, and that's debatable. And, and uh, you know, there have been reviews over the years, and they sometimes they've, they've done some changes to it. Nothing drastic, necessarily. But what galls me about this is, is that when we look back on what they've done here, Phil, is they were setting the stage for this. Uh, because they, before they started on these incursions... Uh, They basically stripped municipalities like Hamilton, Burlington, Toronto, everybody in the province of of their authority to oversee planning in their communities. Uh, I was on the planning committee, which means people came to us and said, yes, we want to build here. We want to do this. We want to do that. Ultimately, it was Hamilton City Council that would make the decision on what was going to be built and how it was going to be built. Uh, But we got we got we got insight from conservation authorities uh, and other commenting groups that had to do uh, uh, some impact studies on this uh environmental studies that were done and essentially the province said no you don't have that authority anymore everything just applied to the province and then they they seem to make themselves the ultimate authority and i've talked to counselors from communities all over this province right now that are sick about this because basically they they forgot their hands tied behind their back uh and the province just seems that that you know we're intent on making this happen and if there were any guardrails which are there for a reason uh, they've wiped them out and simply said, no, but the consequence of this is going to be felt by the city, not by the provincial government, if if that process had gone through.
1: Well, and listen, it's important to understand, too, this is not really provincial planning. And the province saying, oh, we need to take municipalities in hand because they're not doing what they need to. That's actually the narrative that the government wants. They want to say, like, we can't afford you know, local mm-hmm. democracy because this is a housing emergency, and and the government needs to you know directly control things. If they were doing that, there might at least be some you know pretext for it. We may disagree on democratic grounds, but what's actually happening is the opposite. Uh, on on the pretext of of taking control uh, centrally to get more housing built, they are actually dismantling the regional planning system. So the principled way for the province to direct how planning is done is through the provincial policy statement and the growth plan for the Greater Golden Horseshoe. And in particular, in a housing crisis, the job of those documents is to marshal construction capacity to the places where it will produce the most homes with the least cost and at the greatest speed. And that requires regional level planning. That requires uh, top level planning documents. The government right now wants to get rid of the growth plan for the Greater Golden Horseshoe altogether. And rather than strengthening regional planning, the government is removing regional level planning authority and devolving it to lower tier villages and towns who wants to be competing with each other and tripping over each other uh, rather than marshalling construction resources to the places where housing can actually be built quickly. Uh, and what rather than the government actually taking a hand to get more housing built, the government is arbitrarily handing out permissions for individual sites to its friends with no plausible relationship to its stated objective of building more housing. So I think it actually gives the government more credit than it deserves to suggest that they are, uh, Mm. you know, making some decision to sacrifice democracy to get housing built. They are not doing that. They They are sacrificing democracy and sacrificing their own regional plans simply to enrich its buddies and to, actually uh, you know, make uh, power over planning arbitrary and site by site. It's the opposite of what the government would be doing if they were really concerned about getting more homes built faster. We have a shortage of labor and materials and construction equipment. We see construction sites all over the Golden Horseshoe that are sitting uh, vacant and silent 95% of the time because there just aren't enough construction crews to go around and so they're begging and borrowing uh, construction time uh, to get projects done. Well, that's impacting housing supply. And the only way to up housing production is for the government actually at the regional level to say, these are the places where we know that construction would generate the most homes and house the most families most quickly. These are the forms of housing that can be built quickly and house more families quickly, and the go- and the regional government would direct it to those places. We have a situation now where individual villages, just because they want uh, local development, will be trying to draw uh, construction capacity away from places that have existing infrastructure. For example, the town of East Willenberry is trying to do this exactly. They're trying to draw construction that should be happening in Newmarket, in places where it could actually be bringing existing neighborhoods up to transit-supporting densities, off to build new McMansion subdivisions, uh, you know, further north where it'll be a longer commute and where everything will have to be built from scratch. This is a recipe for uh, it, it just just uh, arbitrary giveaways to whoever happens to own land and have the ear of individual government officials.
0: Well, which I guess takes us really to I, one of the core problems with this whole thing, and the way the government has handled this, or would maybe argue mishandled this, is, is the process. First of all, they've they've gutted the the guardrails and, and city councils, town councils, whatever were part of that for local planning, et cetera. Uh, and I get that. Uh, I know that it's it's also I think it's created some mindsets with some people right now that builders are evil people. Uh, no, they're not. <laughs> they're not. No, we need houses. Yeah. People have been doing this. I, as, as a city councilor, I dealt with this all the time. Uh, we, hey, we want to build here, we want to do this. Well, 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 is it zoned for that? No, well, okay. Uh, and sometimes the job of a councillor or a provincial government official is to say no, can't do it that way. No, can't do it there because of these guardrails. But try to work with them. And, and I know, look at a lot of a lot of developers and builders uh, would get pissed off at us and get pissed off at city staff. But they'd grumble about it. But they'd still okay. Those are the rules. Okay, we'll build that way then. Okay, or we'll build here. Uh, these guys just simply decided, hey, we got a government at, in Queens Park right now uh, that, uh, you know, they're just saying, OK, what's it worth to you? Uh, and now that this is where we've heard all these stories about, you know, the the people that showed up at, uh, at the, the stag in for his daughter's wedding, that showed up at the wedding. Uh, there's a great, uh, I think it was at the Star, uh, editorial cartoon about uh, Doug Ford as, a, as the bride throwing the bouquet over his shoulder. And it, what it was, was it was basically permissions for all the developers that are there trying to grab the bouquet. Uh, it's great satire, but but that was the sad reality about this. This government is basically saying, throw us some money and, and we'll give you what you want. And, yeah, and, it's- and rewarding the bad actors, really.
1: Well, and this is why environmental defense, it, you know, you may, there's there's a lot of lumping together of different organizations, but certainly whenever we have anything to say about it, we are very rigorous about not demonizing developers mm-hmm. in general or, 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 you know, or uh, builders in general. We are very clear that our issue is with sprawl developers and with, uh, you know, essentially folks who are seeking to divert capacity away from other projects that would be more efficient and you know to be clear you know there's a lot what we have happening is um it's a structural problem uh in terms of incentives created by the type of players who build different types of housing so the type of folks who build sprawl housing they tend to have be large agricultural landlords right now. So a lot of what we think of as farms that oh, we think farms are owned by farmers. In most of the world, and now it's true in Ontario too, a lot of the farmers are actually tenant farmers. And so there are these agricultural landlords who also happen behind the scenes to be development companies. They have so much land and they, they tend to have so much deep pockets that they are vastly more influential that subset of builders is vastly more influential with respect to governments because they can marshal lots of relatives to donate and they they have sway to get behind organizations like Ontario Proud, as compared with um, the type of developer that would actually build the kind of housing that we're gonna need in order to solve the housing crisis. And that is developers who own lots within existing neighborhoods, a couple lots, small scale developers, who are, you know, small-scale construction companies who are going to be converting what are now low-density lots into uh, multi-residential, whether it's uh, four-story, you know, four-unit buildings uh, with with apartments for families on existing residential streets, or whether that's, you know, in the city of Toronto, uh, folks who would be uh, buying up a couple of houses uh, on... uh, on major bus routes in the city of Toronto, according to the rule that Toronto has in the books, they'd be able to build 30 family-sized apartments on two existing residential lots. Those are much smaller-scale operators, which do not have the same political clout as the big land bank sprawl developers, and that is what is influencing the whole political dynamic at the provincial level. Like small scale developers, they might have donations for local counselor or something like that, but they are not players uh, and, and they are not able, they're not coordinated in the same way at the provincial level. And so you'll see even organizations like Bill, which are supposed to stand for the development industry, they are disproportionately the voices of those big, deep pocketed players and certainly not the kind of uh, small developer that we're talking about here.
0: It's it's, a, it's really a, a matter, I guess, of, of governments, not just talking the talk, but walking the walk, too. Uh, and I know there are going to be some things that come up. I mean, you know... There's going to be nimbyism. You know, we don't want to go up. We want to go out. And 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 it's it's sometimes it's the people in the neighborhoods that are the strongest advocates for that. I remember one infill development. You know, the schools, of course, were selling off properties back uh, a number of years ago. And developers would swoop in and say, okay, we're going to put housing up there. So that's great. That's exactly what we need, infill development. Uh, the neighborhood that, that I remember one in particular, I think there were 75, 80 foot frontages. These were houses that were built, you know, the ranch style houses back in the early 1960s. And the neighborhood, when I had my public meeting with them, said, yeah, we want 75, 80 foot frontages. And I said, well, that's not going to happen. OK, we don't build houses like that anymore. Uh, Probably never should have. But land was pretty cheap back in those days. Uh, They're going to be you know 50 60 foot frontages maybe less than that but we need more houses we're not going to build three or four sprawling houses we're going to build 10 or 15 houses that are going to accommodate made sense to most of the people but there's always going to be somebody yelling and screaming and 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 it seems as if those guys they they seize on that and say see they're ruining your neighborhood uh it's, it's, it's a difficult battle. I get that. But I got the sense that, you know, in the last 10, 15 years, Phil, uh, most people in the public seem to get it now that this is what we need to do. Uh, we yeah, can't I start doing the, this.
1: The boogeyman of the old NIMBY politics, I think is a very convenient, um, sort of, uh, scapegoat or, or kind of like a whipping boy, or, or yeah. it's a straw man argument for the government to be raising. That's, there's actually increasing a very sh- big shifts in public attitudes. And we saw this already uh, in the spring of 2021 when we commissioned a poll of uh, you know, residents all across the Golden Horseshoe on how they would feel about different housing types being built right on their street in their neighborhood. So not elsewhere in theory, but right on your street. And there's actually openness to you know, and, and uh, there are overwhelming support for buildings of up to four stories with multiple units, and there are a lot more supporters than opponents of even buildings up to twelve stories on what are now low-density single-attached streets. And that would not have been the case, you know, ten years ago. And I think a lot of politicians have it in their mind that mentalities are where they were, but there is a real understanding, you know, parents being asked to loan money. To their adult kids so they can just have a chance to get Mm -hmm. a house and you know people just not seeing any plausibility of even being able to stay in the same communities where they grew up or where they live now because there just aren't enough homes like that problem is really becoming apparent to people and because of that people are not completely unreasonable (laughs) they're starting to see that it's not just some other people it's our own kids. Or our own families, of uh, you know, people who are homeowners who are not going to be able to live here if we don't allow denser forms of housing and, and actually make them happen. And so this is how we've gotten in the city of Toronto. The city of Toronto was going much, much, much further than the the uh, provincial government asked them to do. The government wanted to create a narrative that it was forcing the NIMBY local municipalities to, to you know, to build housing and approve housing where they didn't want to. The government had the weakest triplex rule. It would not have delivered any significant number of new homes. It would have been inviolable to build, in most cases, the triplex that the government is mandating. The city of Toronto said, we are going to get rid of any restriction on how much floor space you can build if you're building multiplex housing. We are going to waive a lot of the setback requirements and build form requirements, if that's what it takes to get four apartments built on a single detached lot. They overhauled all of the rules so that it is really possible now to build uh, four apartments on most lots that are currently single detached homes in Toronto. That wasn't anything that the provincial government forced them to do. We're seeing uh, right now of its own accord, not anybody forcing them to do it certainly not the provincial government forcing them to do it. In fact, you know, Tory areas are often like the most opposed to this, but they are of their own accord pursuing six-story buildings as of right inside neighborhoods with up to 30 apartment buildings. So that's local municipalities doing this. And we we see, uh, you know, we hope that that's going to be emulated elsewhere, certainly in a city like Hamilton. There are lots of neighborhoods where that should be emulated. And we now see at the federal level, Minister Sean Fraser is out there uh, not quite demanding the kind of of really muscular bylaw that the city of Toronto has pursued of its own accord, but still, you know, much stronger approaches Mm -hmm. to density than the province is imposing. Uh, So the province is really not like there's no there's no argument to be made here that the province needs to do these things because everyone else is being. For it's not. It's not what's happening.
0: Uh, very, very few discussion points uh, during all the debate that's going on now uh, seem to, to acknowledge the fact that one of the reasons we're in this, and, and a lot of this is, is global economics, they get all that, but it's also the fact that our federal and provincial governments uh, were basically abandoning municipalities for about 25 years they didn't they didn't fund any of this stuff I, I can remember one of the first conferences i went to the federation of canadian municipalities and i know you're aware that's basically city councillors and mayors from all over the country getting together and the hue and cry this was 1999 my first time on council where's the money where's the money you know we need money for housing and they did there was none coming and that's, that's, that's going back to the Mulrooney government, the Kretchen government. I mean, you know, a pox on all their houses. I'm glad they're starting to realize now that they do have a responsibility. Uh, and we hope it's not too late. But I guess the- I mean,
1: Yeah, you just look at a table of the amount, for example, of public or social housing that was being built and funded by the federal government. And it just dives off a cliff. Uh, you know, it, it starts to fall in the 80s to some extent, but it dives off a cliff in uh you know 1993 basically it's it, 1992 actually it's just wild if you look at that chart uh the uh, the 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 fall off in uh you know federal and provincial support for housing and uh and and how little it has recovered since and it's only now that it, you know through the uh the new housing accelerator fund where the the federal government is starting to really seriously get back in the game and hopefully there's time for it to make an impact within the Mm. next couple of years
0: where's this going uh you know we we've had the auditor general's report the integrity commissioner's report uh the rcmp is now investigating what's going on here i i would wouldn't even dare to predict exactly how that's going to go uh whether charges are going to be laid, etc but the overriding concern here i guess is when the dust settles and it eventually will on this uh, is this just going to be their cue, the, meaning the the government, uh, to say, okay, fine, uh, that's been finished, it's done with, now we're going to go back and change all the laws so we can do what we wanted to do initially, as you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation.
1: I how, think do you, how do you if,
0: reinstall those safeguards? I
1: think if we let them get away with it, that's 100% what they will try to do. This is why it is so important to reinforce to people that the corruption, like to not get lost in the details here. The fundamentally corrupt thing, there is no non-corrupt way under these circumstances where we have a construction capacity crunch and when we have a huge housing supply uh, problem, there is no non-corrupt way to extend settlement boundaries and divert that capacity to sprawl. There is no non-corrupt way to remove land from the green belt, which is even harder to and, and less efficient to build on under those circumstances. So any way they go at it, it is that decision itself that is inherently untenable and, and, and it, whatever way they crack it, it's gonna it's gonna be crack. And as long as Ontarians keep their eye on that ball and remind their local politicians that they're not going to accept any process or any post rationalization for that kind of decision we should be okay but it's going to take you know that you know making that clear
0: well more to come on this i guess when that investigation is wound up and we get the results of that and a lot more discussion to be had on this too and uh, certainly we'll like to to join uh that discussion and have you back on the, sh- on the podcast very soon to talk about that phil as always thank you so much great talking with you again today
1: thanks for having me bill
0: Take care. And that's it for this edition of the Bill Kelly podcast. Thanks for listening. And thanks for subscribing as well. You can get the podcast, news updates, and more exclusive content by subscribing to the Substack, too. Welcome your comments and your suggestions. You can follow us on YouTube, Facebook, X, and Instagram at This is Bill Kelly. Until next time, take care. We'll talk to you again soon. This podcast was brought to you by Rebecca Wizens and her team at Wizens Law. Rebecca Wisons is a 20 time winner of the Hamilton Reader's Choice Awards for their exceptional client care and legal practice, specializing in personal injury, car accidents, accidental falls, and Wilson Estates. Now, if you or a loved one have been seriously injured, or if you want to make sure that your family is taken care of for the future with a will and powers of attorney, call Rebecca Wisons, 905 522 1102 for a free consultation. When life happens, you can rely on Rebecca Wisons and Wisons Law. And trust me, Rebecca is my wife. I don't know what I'd do without her. That's Wizen's Law, 905-522-1102 for a free consultation. Subscribe to my Substack for timely news updates and commentary straight to your inbox. Let's keep the conversation going. I'd love to hear your thoughts on today's episode. Let me know what you think we should be talking about next by contacting me through my website at www.billkelly.co. Thanks for tuning in. This is Bill Kelly. Till next time, you take care. ¶¶